through Numbers, just 10 more chapters to go. And, uh, and so as you're turning there, let me just give you a little bit of background as to what's going on um, when we get to chapter 26, because what we've just completed is what we might call the Balaam cycle. In other words, the, the, if you're familiar at all with, with, with the Old Testament, there was a prophet um, by the name of Balaam, and he was hired to curse the people of God. And as it turns out, he was unable to curse God's people because if God has set his blessing upon his people, um, it just doesn't matter what mankind might do. And so um, he could not actually curse the people of God, but here's what he did. And so, so when it turns out he couldn't curse the people of God, but could only bless them, the guy who hired him, his name was um, Balak, the guy who hired him said, okay, well, you didn't do what I'm paying you to do, and so go back home and I'm not paying you. You, you didn't do, you, you breached the contract. The contract was to curse the people of God. You didn't. You blessed them instead. So home you go and without pay. Well, later we find out that what Balaam ends up doing is he tells this king, the king of Moab, Balak, he says, here's what you need to do. If you truly want to curse the people of God, you're not going to get it through some prophet cursing them. But if you entice them to sin... God will bring his covenant curses upon the people. So here's what you do, your majesty, Balak. Send some of your women over into the camp of the Israelites and entice them and bring them back. And eventually they will not only um, engage and have a relationship with the daughters and the, 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 the women there in Moab, but they will worship your gods. And that's exactly what happened. This was done at Balaam's council. And as a result, this was, um, as a result, God brought a curse upon his people and 24,000 people died. That's our background. You need to know that background because um, it is crucial to getting to where, what we're going to look at today. So that's the background. The preview, just to give you a preview of where we're going to go today, is this is a, the whole chapter, almost the entire chapter of 20, chapter 26 of the book of Numbers is a census. All right? Um, so we're counting people. How many people are in Israel? This is the second census of the people in Israel. In fact, that's where the book of Numbers gets its name, Numbers, because it's a bunch of numbers. That's what we're going to look at, a bunch of numbers today. And uh, so they're going to, this is the second census. The, the, the first generation, the first generation has died because they would not believe God. They got to a place. They were ready to enter the promised land. They didn't believe God. And God says, you are going to wander in the desert for 40 years until this generation dies out and a new generation will inherit the promises that you have rejected. So now we're at that new generation and we are going to count this new generation. So it's a census of the second generation, the generation that will hopefully believe God and enter into the promised land. The old generation has died. 
And perhaps one of our, a key verse that might help us um, tie all of this together is found in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, and it's one that I'm sure many of you know, but it says this. It says, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And God is going to bring about the completion of his work. He is faithful to do what he says. So that's um, uh, just a little bit of a review and just a, a, a brief summary of where we're going to go today. And so now with that, let's look at a couple. I'm just going to read a few verses in chapter 26, um, chapters 1 through the first part of 4. But listen to the inerrant word of God. After the plague... The Lord said to Moses and to Eleazar, the son of Aaron the priest, take a census of all the congregation of the people of Israel from 20 years old and upward by their father's houses, all in Israel who are able to go to war. And Moses and Eleazar the priest spoke with them in the plains of Moab by the Jordan at Jericho saying, take a census of the people from 20 years old and upward as the Lord commanded Moses. And I'm going to just stop there for a moment and just remind you that this is a new generation. The old generation had rejected the promises of God, refused to enter the promised land. They were condemned to die in the wilderness. Um, And so with that, I want to highlight and focus your eyes on this these three words after the plague i think this is central to understanding the census it is central to understanding the the idea that that i i believe that god is trying to um uh make clear in this passage of text because this is not just about numbers it's not just about counting people but after the plague. The plague, remember, was the fruit of their utter disdain for the blessings of God and actually a disdain for God himself. After the plague, God had mercifully kept Israel from returning to Egypt, that is, going back to slavery. But they found another master to serve in the gods of of the Canaanites, and 24,000 people died in the plague. Think about that. 24,000 people. After that, after the plague, this was likely, the the death of these 24,000 people was likely the event that completely eliminated the first generation. Now the entire first generation is dead. The only one surviving is Moses and he's going to, his death is coming soon. After the plague, and the question here is, what's going to happen? After the plague, what's going to happen? Has God now abandoned us? Will he no longer be our God and we be his people? After the plague, how long will his judgment last? After the plague, what's going to happen? What is God's response to the treason? We are treasonous people, and God has severely judged us. What now? And the next three words are utterly beautiful. The Lord said. The Lord said. In other words, God has not shut off his people. 
He has not stopped communicating. He has not ceased communicating with the people whom He has just judged. He continues to make Himself known. And folks, one of the great things that we learn from the book of Numbers is that God is a revealing God. God is a God who makes Himself known. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3 tells us that in times past, God made Himself known through through the prophets, through our fathers. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. See, God is a revelatory God. He makes Himself known. God is not silent. God has made Himself known in nature. God has made Himself known in our conscience. But ultimately, God has made Himself known in the person of Jesus Christ. We know God is not silent Communication, speaking, is an act of relationship. The promises of God have not been thwarted. They have not ceased. God is still communing with His people. It is important to understand that now that that the people of Israel have a clear understanding of who God is and what God expects. So after the plague, God has not turned His back upon His people, Israel. I want you to know God speaks today. God has spoken to us finally and fully in the person of Jesus Christ. We have that revelation in this book we call the Bible. It is the final authoritative sufficient word of God. He does not add to this or subtract from it. God is utterly sufficient and he continues to speak to his people through his son that is revealed in his word. After the plague, the Lord said to Moses and to Eleazar, the Aaron, the priest, take a census. Take a census. Now, as I explained, this is the second census. It is the census of the new generation. There is a new generation that is going to take over. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. And so we need to ask then, what is the purpose of a census? Why do people take censuses? Why was this census taken? And I'm going to give you two reasons, but the first reason is one we already discovered back in chapter 1, and that is people take censuses for the purpose of um, military for warfare. So the first census is count the number of people you have when you for for warfare, the age age 20 years old and older able to go to war. We need to know how many troops we have. What are our resources? What are our assets? Now, a couple of things we should Note about this idea of counting the people for warfare. When you count people for warfare, it assumes that warfare is going to happen. It assumes conflict. In other words, it is a reminder that battles are inevitable. And you're like, wait a second. I thought God is in their midst. I thought God was with them. Shouldn't everything be smooth sailing? If God is with us, then... No conflict. That's just nowhere in Scripture. Conflict is inevitable and it is assumed. So count the assets that you have. Number your troops. 
The place of privilege as the people of God does not include a journey without strife and conflict. The presence of God provides confidence that we can withstand any opposition, but it does not guarantee the removal of that opposition. Jesus said, listen, in this life you have tribulation. But he doesn't stop there. Um, Thank God. But I have overcome the world. In this world you have tribulation. But be of good cheer. I'm the overcomer. We have opposition in this journey. Don't think for a moment that every moment will be smooth sailing. If it is smooth sailing for you, praise God. Rejoice. But don't think for a moment that it could come to an end. God brings trials and difficulties our way. But here's the thing. God is in our midst. And here's the other great thing about this this take a census, this idea of taking a census. In other words, um, you are not alone. Yes, you are journeying together with a bunch of other people, and yes, there will be conflict, but you do not face the conflict by yourself. There is, despite what the advertising would say, there is no such thing as an army of one. Well, maybe for about two seconds, and then he's slaughtered. Armies need others. Military might is better when there are others along. We do not fight alone. The census then is an indicator of who's on board. Who can I call on to fight with me? Who can we rely upon to battle together? We are not been called to fight alone. It is not only to give support, but to fight for one another. In other words, the census is saying, you can count on me. I am there to join with you in the battle. I will fight alongside of you. I will fight with you, and I will fight for you. Your life is valuable to me, and I will fight with you and for you. Together, we will display the splendor and majesty of God Almighty. And when we do, we, I'm saying that I am accountable to you and you are accountable to me. I need you to be skilled in warfare so that you defend my back and you need to know that I am skilled in warfare and I will defend your back. We got each other. Today, our... As, as an application, we need to realize that we do not live in a theocracy um, in the same way that Israel did. But the covenant community is not a theocratic nation, but the com- covenant community today is the church of the living God. And we are told this, we are told that we do not wrestle with flesh and blood but with principalities and powers and rulers in high places. Our enemies are not the Moabites, the Canaanites, the Hivites, the Perizzites. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Our enemies are not Democrats and they are not Republicans. Our enemies are not Christian nationalists and Antifa. Those are not our enemies. Because we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but with principalities and powers and rulers in high places. 
And we are told that the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but are mighty for the tearing down of strongholds. So one might ask, well, then what are our weapons? Well, that's a whole sermon series in and of itself. But let me point out three. These three, I hopefully will kind of prime the pump. If you want to explore these a little bit further, you can. But the first weapon that we have, and we see this in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10, right? That is the armor of God. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers and against authorities and against cosmic powers over this present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. Therefore... Take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand, stand firm. Stand therefore doing what? Having fastened on the belt of truth. And let me just say that I think truth may be one of the primary weapons that we have uh, in the the illustration that Paul gives. um, Truth is what holds everything else together. And we have the truth of God's word. And let me reaffirm, we have the truth of God's word. John chapter 17, verse 17, Jesus in his high priestly prayer is praying to his father. He says this, he says in verse 17, he says, He's praying for his disciples. He's praying for the disciples. He says, they, the disciples, are not of the world, just as I'm not of the world. He's praying to the Father, sanctify them. Sanctify who? That is set apart. Who? The disciples. Set them apart in truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I've sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they may be sanctified in truth. Set them apart in truth. Truth is so so important. And we live in a culture and a day and in an environment where the truth is suppressed and um, ridiculed and mocked so that, man, today, if you speak the truth, you will be canceled. You will be deplatformed, demonetized, ridiculed, and shut off. And we speak the truth. We are called to speak the truth. I Just one of the things that has come to mind is the little fable of the emperor's new clothes. There was one little boy. It's the story about a shyster who comes along and says he is going to um, make the king new clothes. They're invisible clothes. You can't see them, but they're there. And he comes out, I don't know if he's buck naked or in his underwear. And everybody's, oh, look at the what wonderful clothes, what wonderful clothes. And the little boy says, man, the guy's naked. And they shun him because he's got the truth. But he's telling the truth. We live in a day where I pray that we are little boys saying the emperor has no clothes. Boys are not girls. And girls are not boys. Praise God. I don't know why. But we live in a a culture 
that such speech is seen as hateful, worthy of silence, but the truth is the truth. And we have the truth. Look at this, this quote. I think this is just so um, from Rod Dreher's book, Live Not by Lies. And he says this, Today's totalitarianism demands allegiance to a set of progressive beliefs, many of which are incompatible with logic. And certainly with Christianity, compliance is forced less by the state than by elites who form public opinion and by private corporations that, thanks to technology, control our lives far more than the world likes to admit. I want to encourage us all. We need to tell the truth. We just need to tell the truth. And I'm not saying that everything will go well for you. But we do need to tell the truth. And even if the forces of society overwhelm us and we become isolated, we can at least say, but I told the truth. I did not lie. I did not lie. We have the truth of God's word. Let's live by it. But that's not the only um, weapon we have. It's a powerful weapon. But we also have the weapon of praise. And praise throughout Scripture, we see that it often stills the enemy. Now, when you're being tempted, sing. Turn on praise music. Man, if you're struggling with what you're going to look on the computer and you're, and you're getting ready to, to defile the name of God Almighty, instead, Type in a praise song. You will gain strength. You will gain power. This is why we gather together and sing. We gather and we sing together because praise can still the enemy. It is, man, when, turn off the news. Shut down Fox, shut down CNN or Newsmax. Turn off the news and turn on the praises of God. It stills the enemy. Are you worried? Are you anxious? Do you, do you wonder what's going to happen tomorrow? Praise. It's a powerful, powerful weapon. Don't miss it. Let me bring up a third. Like I said, we could probably do weeks on weapons of our warfare, but a third one is, is that of corporate worship. That is, as we gather together, as the army of God's people gathered in one place, and we hear the Word of God, and we sing the Word of God, and we proclaim the Word of God, and we rejoice with others, and we weep with others, corporate worship and the reception of God's Word is a means of grace. And what I mean by a means of grace is that it is God's 
means of grace are what we would call God's appointed instruments by which the Holy Spirit enables believers to receive Christ and the benefits of redemption. So when we sing together and I hear you sing, it is a benefit to me. And I pray it's a benefit to you. Sing together in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. What does that mean? It's corporate worship. Corporate singing. We need to hear one another's voices. Sing boldly. Sing badly if you must, like me. But sing. We Read God's Word. This is why we have times of reading God's Word. You need to hear God's Word. It is a means by which God strengthens His people. And He does it as a corporate entity. You are not a lone soldier. You are part of an army. And the army gathers on the Lord's Day at this particular place and in many places around the world, but this regiment, if you will, gathers at 6338 West Randall Place to receive the grace of God through His hearing His Word. It strengthens us. Hearing His saints proclaim His great name by receiving the elements. It is means of grace. Normally we think of those as the, as, as the ordinances and as the reading of God's word and as prayer. These are the means of God's grace. They are the means by which God blesses and grows his people. But you are not a lone ranger. The church by definition is an assembly and the military analogy we're looking at is by definition a group of individuals and we battle for one another. So, take a census. After the plague, take a census, count the military. There's another thing that's going on here that I find really interesting is there is a listing of some people who are dead. That's amazing to me because we are counting not dead people for a census, but living people. Censuses don't count dead people. Censuses count living people. Who can battle? So why do we have dead people listed in the census? Because these are warnings. In other words, when we talk about warfare, we assume there will be casualties. And we see individuals by the name of Dathan and Abiram, and they had conspired against God. And I want you to note this. In verse 9... It says, these are Dathan and Abiram chosen from the congregation who contended against Moses and Aaron in the company of Korah when they contended against the Lord. First of all, note that. They contended against Moses and Aaron when they contended against the Lord. Folks, they were contending against God when they spoke against Moses. And the earth opened up its mouth and swallowed them up together with Korah. And the company died. When the fire devoured 250 men, they became a warning. Literally, they became a sign. And that word, generally, that word nice, generally has to do with um, uh, a signal pole or a flag or a banner. Many of you may have heard of the, the, the name of God, Jehovah Nisi. It means God our banner. And um, so 
it's generally a signal or a sign or a banner that we rally around. Here, however, it is employed as a warning for how God deals with revolt. These people perished in their unbelief. They are banners. They are rallying points. Don't become a casualty. Don't be Dathan and Abiram. They perish because of unbelief. Then we see a couple others, Ur and Onan and Nadab and Abihu. All of these are individuals who died died because of their unbelief. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 11 is really kind of one of the key verses to understand the book or to, to filter the book of Numbers. And it says this, Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the world has come. Note this. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did when 23,000 fell in today. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened as a sign, as an example There will be casualties in the war. Don't be a casualty. I think that's why we have this warning. And I want you to know they died because of unbelief. They would not believe God. This is very interesting because they did not die because it wasn't their sin with the Moabite women who killed them. It wasn't their sin. Um, It wasn't that they perished at the hands of their enemy. They perished because they did not believe God. What separated them from the covenant community? It wasn't the sin of Peor. It was that they did not believe God. And their actions testified to their unbelief. So let me encourage you. God has called us to repent of our sins, call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ as the only means of salvation. That is it. And you can say, well, I don't know. I don't think that's the only way. You will perish because of your unbelief. And so I'm calling upon you. I'm imploring you. I pray that the Spirit of God convicts the hearts of people who may be hearing this to call upon the name of the Lord. So the first purpose of the census is for warfare. But that's not the only one. It's not the only purpose. The second purpose that we find here is for inheritance. And we find this in verse 53. Verse 53. Among the, uh, and the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Among these the land shall be divided for inheritance according to the number of names. To a large tribe you'll give a large inheritance. To a small tribe you'll give a small inheritance. Every tribe shall be given its inheritance in proportion to its list. So this is, list is a compiled so we know how to distribute the land. After the plague, after the plague, after the rebellion, the promise stands. What a great word of encouragement. I have not forgotten, I have not abandoned the inheritance that I promised to your father, your forefather Abraham. And even though the plague brought about a severe judgment, the promise stands. It's good. It is secure. I have not abandoned it. 
The census is to serve as the equitable for the equitable division of the land. And here's the amazing thing. The faith in God's promise is still necessary. They do not have the land. They're still in the plains of Moab. They have not crossed the Jordan River. They have not taken control of the land. It is not theirs. They still must believe that God's promise stands. The land is still ours. They must believe that the promises of God are yes and amen. They must believe in that which they have yet to receive. Oh man, what a great word for us today. We need to believe in what we have yet to receive. And let me give you a probably the highlighted example. And we'll talk more about these ladies in, in next week and at the end of the book. But in chapter or in verse 33, we see this very strange um, statement. Now Zelophehad, the son of Hefer, had no sons but daughters, and the names of the daughters of Zelophehad were Mala, Noah, Hagla, Milcah, and Tizron. And we're going to learn next week a little bit about the daughters of Zelophehad, but let me point something out. Very interesting that there are women mentioned in this census because they are not included in battle, nor would women be listed for inheritance. That would come through sons. They would receive an inheritance through their husband. But Zelophehad had no sons. All he had were daughters. And I believe that this, the daughters of Zelophehad are not given to us to give us some instruction in regards to women's rights. Maybe that's part of the story, but that's not the whole of the story. I don't think that's the thrust of the story. That's not why they're listed. And again, we'll see this next week, so come back next week and learn about the daughters of Zelophehad because they're amazing women. But I think they're put forth as examples of belief. They are put forth in contrast to Dathan and Abiram, Ur and Onan. They're put forth as examples not of unbelief, but of belief. You see, they want an inheritance in a land that is promised but not yet possessed. And so they act on their faith. They go to Moses and say, Moses, our father, a faithful member of this community, he died. Are you going to wipe out his name from amongst the earth? What about us? We should have an inheritance. We should have, they are believing. First of all, they believe in an inheritance. They know that God is going to bring about an inheritance and they believe God and they are living in light of the promise. So they are going to, they are going to appeal to Moses. Listen, in our case, we're not just making stuff up. But in our case, there should be an inheritance. We believe there's an inheritance and we believe that we should have part of that inheritance. And so the the amazing thing here is they believe God and they act upon their faith. They live in light of the promise. I think they're put forth as a model of faith. They are, unlike the previous warnings of unbelief, these women epitomize the new generation. The old generation might be epitomized by Dathan and Abiram. The new generation is epitomized by the daughters of Zelophehad. 
Folks, just a quick application. We are future-oriented people. And the promises of God are not yet realized. We are still, I guess you could say, on the journey. Perhaps we are poised on the border with the promise in sight, but we do not have the promise yet. Will we grow weary and say, ah, the promises, uh, I don't think they're, they're any good? Or will we hold forth and say, wait a second, the promises of God are yes and amen. I want you to know something. I want, I want to read a passage we talk about periodically, but I think it is so, so important. The promises of God are not yet realized. I want you to know that salvation is of God and it is therefore secure. And one of the things that Paul says in, in chapter 8, verse 28 of Romans is this. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So this text takes us back to... um, prior to creation, but here's what I want to point out. And those he predestined, he called. And those he called, he did what? He justified. All the called are justified. But here's the kicker. And those he justified, he glorified. That's an amazing statement because none of us have been glorified. That is the ultimate entry into the land of promise. Paul is talking about a future reality that is so certain he can talk about it as already occurring. It has already happened. Paul is so certain I can talk about it as though it is a present reality now. Even though I don't have that promise right now, it's not in my hand, it is so certain that I can talk about it as though it has already happened. Why? Because it is fixed in eternity past. Man. Christ is ours. This is why Paul also then in Ephesians, in the book of Ephesians, Paul writes this. We can be certain that Christ is ours. He says that we are seated in heavenly places with Christ Jesus. We are seated. He's not talking about we will be seated No, we are seated. The future is now. It is already a reality, though we have not yet obtained it. We can, like the daughters of Zelophehad, say, it's ours. It's ours. And just in case you're not certain, or you need to be convinced, look at what Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 1. I'll start with verse 11. In him, that is in Christ, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of his will, who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him, in Christ, also when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee 
of our inheritance. You have an inheritance in Christ. You have not received it, but you do have a down payment. A guarantee that what has been purchased will be given. Some people have used this idea of inherit, um, this guarantee uh, to speak of, perhaps it, it speaks of, of, of the engagement ring. The engagement ring is not the wedding, but it is the promise that the wedding is going to occur. I have many, in my father's house are many mansions, and I go to prepare a place for you. And when and I will come and get you and bring you to the place where I am. It is a certainty. And let me give you a down payment, the Holy Spirit dwelling in you. That's the guarantee. Just in case you're not certain, let me give you an engagement ring. Let me put a down payment. The down payment is the very Spirit of God dwelling within us. This is the promise. The daughters of Zelotha had highlight or exemplify that. So how should we live? Peter says, in light of the fact that Christ is coming again, how should we live? Well, I pray that we live hopeful. We can live hopeful. You're going, yeah, you don't know what's going on in the world. Yeah, I do. And I am hopeful. I may not be all that optimistic, but I am hopeful. We can live unstained from the world. We can live repentant. And we can live to fight for one another. Brother, are you struggling? Sister, are you weak? Let me, how can I spur you on to love and good works? Let's go, let's fight. I hope we can fight together as a church. Those are things we can do. The promise is ours, the guarantee, it's guaranteed. The down payment's been made. Paul's certain of it. The daughters of Zelophehad were certain of it. Saints, let's be certain of the inheritance that God has made. One more thing, and then I'll, I'll conclude. And I didn't know where to put this. And I just really sensed that I need to include it, and it didn't fit anywhere in the message, or not smoothly. So I'm just going to include it here. I want to talk a little bit about verse 11 in Numbers chapter 26 in the sons of Korah. This was a great scripture for me because it, it answered some questions that I had. Verse 11. The previous verses talked about how Korah and the rebellion of Korah and how the earth opened up and swallowed them and fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And then verse 11, but the sons of Korah did not die. Many who were of the clan of Korah died in rebellion, in their rebellion. Heaven and earth testified to their rebellion. Fire came down from heaven and the earth swallowed it up. All of creation testified they were guilty of rebelling against a holy God. But the sons of Korah did not die. And that would be a an interesting verse, if it were just there, we'd say, I wonder what that's all about, and then move along. But then we come to the book of Psalms. And in the book of Psalms, there are numerous psalms that are written by the sons of Korah. 
Psalm 42, Psalm 44, 45, 46, 47, 48, 49, 84, 85, 87, 88. God was not done with these people. This is grace. The sin of their fathers did not doom the children, but God raised them up and used them in a glorious, wondrous way to bless us. Thousands of years later, we are blessed because the sons of Korah did not die. So I guess my my application is this. You are not doomed to the abuses and the terror and the irresponsibility of your parents. Some of you, maybe you're listening, you were abused, you were neglected, you were abandoned in one way or another. Perhaps you even bear the scars of your father's and mother's sins. I just want you to know you are not doomed to that. Take hope in the sons of Korah. God, they did not die. And God raised them up and used them in a glorious way. Man, if you've been hurt by a a previous generation, take hope in the grace that God bestows upon the sons of Korah, and pray and know that if you are in Christ, in Christ, the grace of the sons of Korah is yours as well. And God also will do wondrous things through you. Whether you become a hymn writer or you become just a mother of great kids or a father of great kids or a single person who loves the Lord ministering, God does not. The sins of the past do not have to be yours. I just felt I needed to put that in. And so I'll conclude with this. Folks, as believers, people who are in Christ, we are new creations in God. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. If you've been born again, if you've been regenerated by the Holy Spirit, God has made you his own. He is with you and he is in you and he has placed you in a community who will join with you on the journey. In many ways, perhaps Genesis chapter 26 is a a type, if you will, or points forward to the old man and the new man. The old man has passed away. Behold, the new man has come. All things are new. You have been born again. You are a new creation in Christ if you are in Christ. And and if you're not in Christ, I would love to spend some time talking with you about what that means, how to uh, enter into the kingdom, how to live as a kingdom citizen. We would love to be part of that journey with you. We will fight with you. We will fight for you. We will fight by you and with you. But I'll conclude with this, that we are confident that he who began a good work in you will complete it in the day of Jesus Christ our Lord. Father, be merciful to us. Bless this, your word, and let us rejoice in your goodness. For Christ's sake we pray. Amen. Let's stand.